At Keeley Companies, culture sets them apart. They are dedicated to the safety, the well-being, and the career growth of every employee, which they refer to affectionately as the Keelians. Recently, they launched a new cultural pillar called Keeley One, focusing on diversity and inclusion. Senior Project Manager Henry Isaacs says that understanding everyone is unique and different is critical. We have to recognize our individual differences and that everyone deserves to be included and have their voice heard. For Keeley, this focus on diversity and inclusion has been a huge morale booster. It makes people more excited to come into work, which correlates to greater retention and enhances their overall culture. Now, when establishing your culture of diversity and inclusion, Henry has some great advice for us. Have an open mind and be willing to step out of our comfort zone. That's number one. Number two, take the time to truly learn, to seek wisdom around different cultures, different races, and different religions. Do the work, in other words. And then thirdly, reach out to someone different from you and be intentional in having an open and honest conversation with them. End the sentences with question marks. It's great advice from Henry, and I want to thank my friends from Keeley Companies for being proud sponsors, partners, and super fans of the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. You know, this month of July that you and I find ourselves living and working and navigating and potentially traveling in makes me think of a road trip that I took when I was 13 years old. Now, on most family vacations, we loaded up the old wooden station wagon, two parents, six kids. Yes, that's right, six kids for a 20-hour trip down to Naples, Florida. Now, I don't, I don't remember every single one of those 20-hour joy rides down to Florida, but I do remember one of them. I was 13 years old, and my grandfather had just given me, younger kids, you will have no idea what I'm about to say, but here it is, a cassette tape. So grandpa gave me a cassette tape, and he told me to listen to the guy on it. And so on the ride down to Florida that summer, I plugged in this little cassette tape, pushed down the play button, and was blown away by the story of a gentleman speaking named Charlie Plum. Charlie Plum shared that how at 24 years of age and just five days before the end of his tour in Vietnam, his F-4 Phantom Jet was shot down. What was scheduled to be his 75th and his final mission before returning home to his new bride turned into spending the next 2,103 days in the North Vietnamese as a prisoner of war. You see, just... A few years prior, I was burned on 100% of my body and struggling mightily to understand what my future would hold, wondering if I could make sense of fitting in in this new world that I found myself living in. 
And then hearing the story of Charlie Plum, this fellow survivor, and how he shared his story, the ability he had to articulate the truth that in spite of the challenges we face or have faced in the past, we all have within us the ability to reveal the courage to not only overcome current circumstances, but live into the truth that our best days are in front of us. It was very clear in the way Charlie shared his story. So back in 2017, as we rolled out my podcast, the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary, we made a list of people that we wanted to have on. We knew the first guest. She had to be someone that I call mom. You might call her Aunt Susan or Mrs. O'Leary or Susan O'Leary or the author of Overwhelming Odds. But guest number one was my mother. And then we rolled forward and had a bunch of other remarkable guests. But one of my absolute favorite stories ever is the story of Charlie Plum. I've heard Charlie share several times at conferences his story, have met him several times live. And when I invited him to join us way back in May of 2017, he immediately responded, yes, John, I'm all in. So in 2017, I was honored to welcome Charlie Plum into our Live Inspired podcast community, episode 31, and was able to express my gratitude for the way he changed my life as a child. Here's what I want to do today. I want to remind you of how regardless of where you've been or where you are, what remains possible in your life going forward. So we're going to celebrate that truth by playing a couple of the highlights from the Charlie Plum podcast. Frequently, I've been finding myself reflecting on the two specific parts of our conversation that moved me most. Well, the first from Charlie was his faith in purpose, faith and purpose. Even when it was not obvious or seemed like a ridiculous belief to hold on to hope, to hold on to faith, or to hold on to purpose that there's a reason for enduring this, it was ultimately what allowed him to experience and weather and endure and then ultimately overcome six years of torture. So faith and purpose, it mattered to him. And what I will say to you in 2021, leaders, family, friends, it matters to us. What is our purpose and how can really embrace and that allow us to navigate these choppy waters? And second thing that I remember most from my time with Charlie was his answer to the third live inspired question. Those of you who have been listening for a while know that we always ask seven questions as we wrap up with our guests, the live inspired seven. On his response to question number three, the one item that he would run back into if his house was burning, what would he save? What would be that one item? Um, Hearing it and hearing what it meant to him and hearing what it still means to him um, gave me goosebumps four years ago. And I think when you hear today, it's going to move you deeply. So my friends, as we all face challenges in our health or maybe in our finances, in our community, in our relationships, in our lack of relationships, I believe hearing Charlie share what was critical to him, not only surviving, but thriving, will inspire you just like it did for some 13-year-old little boy on his way to Florida named John O'Leary of the truth that the best is yet to come. So now let's jump into my conversation with my friend, And now yours, his name is Charlie Plum. Charlie, as you're going through six years of torture and abuse and starvation and illness and everything else, was there a time when you look back to that day when you were shot down and you wished, you know what, I wish one of those, the flak or the bullets or the villagers had just finished me off? No, I never, ever felt that way. 
and there was never a day it never got so bad in that prison camp that I that I was hoping for death. I always had a spark of hope within me. And, and, of course, now, you know, looking back on the whole issue, and I, I think of my adversity as you think of yours. And, and, and as most people think of theirs, yes. is that, hey, it may have been the best thing could happen to me. No, I didn't enjoy going through it. But, but oh, by the way, so many of the benefits of our lives happened because you were burned and I was shot down. Before we even talk about the benefits, Charlie, why do you think that you survived this time and so many others who were brought in and treated the same way and given the same food or lack thereof food did not survive? Well, first of all, I'm a religious guy, and I had faith that there was a purpose to all of this. That meant a lot. Secondly, my attitude of, uh, of having a choice, you know, I... I know you, you reference uh, Victor Franklin in your book On Fire. Yes. And uh, I had read that book before I went to the prison camp. The whole idea what a gift. That, that, that if you know the why, yeah. uh, you can endure the how. And uh, it was really interesting because for the first several months, you know, I could not figure out the why. I, I was bitter. I was angry. I mean, the vitriol within me, I wanted to strangle every one of these guards that was um, doing the torture. And about the three- or four-month period, it hit me that I was killing myself with this, mm. uh, not knowing the why of it all. And so I decided there's got to be a purpose to this. I don't know what it is. I may never know what it is, but there's got to be a purpose. And if there's a why, then I can figure out how to survive. We also had a very solid leadership in that camp, Admiral Jeremiah Denton and uh, Admiral Jim Stockton. They weren't admirals at the time. They were just, uh, you know, they were just regular fighter pilots like the rest of us. Uh, John McCain, who was my flight instructor. I knew John quite well when he came into the camp. But these guys got together, and they told us the why of it all. And one of the things I do, John, besides uh, motivational speaking, is that I do leadership seminars. And and I, I try to get leaders to express to their followers the why of it all. And these guys, the, the leaders in the prison camp, decided, hey, we are not victims. We are not on the defensive here. I think, wait a minute. <laughs> you're, you're a prisoner of war. You're bleeding from four open wounds, no medical care. You've got boils all over your body. Yes. You know, you're down about half your normal weight. You're eating bugs. <laughs> and, 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 you're not, and you're not a victim here? <laughs> No, you're not a victim. You're a warrior. Pull up your big boy pants because we're going to fight this war till our last breath. Yes. And it was really interesting. Just the leadership changed the whole attitude of the camp. That we're not in this rigging negative situation. That we were in a that we were in a positive situation, and we were going to continue to be warriors. One one thing that amazes me about you specifically, but also you mentioned some big names, admirals and senators, and there's a, there's a long list. Is so many of the men who left these torturous situations, years and years of abuse, go on to have remarkable lives, like huge huge impact. I'm curious why you think that is. We have surprised an awful lot of people. When we came home, they thought we'd be vegetables. They thought we'd be in baskets. They had our families brief to institutionalize us the rest of our lives. From 591 men, we have produced 17 generals, seven admirals. Most of us retired as senior grade military officers. I retired as a Navy captain. 
Uh, we went back to flying airplanes and commanding ships and battalions all over the world. We have um, two ambassadors, two United States senators, a vice presidential candidate, a presidential candidate, a bunch of congressmen, doctors, lawyers, preachers, teachers, bishops, judges, uh, and and they're telling us they're telling us today that we're healthier mentally and physically than the fighter pilots who weren't shot down. Yes. Pretty amazing. It's well, shocking. Tell me about that. Why, why is this, Charlie? Well, the guys that know a whole lot more about this than I do, and some of them have come up with, with post-traumatic growth. You had Michaela Haas. Remember her? Yes, I remember her well. Okay, she talked on your, on your podcast, and this gal really knows a yes. lot about this. Post-traumatic growth. And a study was done just two years ago of all the combatants of Vietnam. 30.6% have post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. Of the prisoners of war, 4% of us have PTSD. And and the guys that have the problems mostly are the guys that were only there for a few weeks or a month or two. Yes. I mean, the guys who were there the longest, eight and a half years, have Alvarez. Uh, the guys who were there the longest seem to have come back the healthiest. Amazing. Well, uh, but you're asking me why, and I can only give you my impression of why. Perfect. First of all, we had great leadership, and I, I think that any one of the 591 guys who came home will tell you that that he owes his survival, and I certainly do, to guys like Jim Stockdale uh, and Jeremiah Denton and, 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 and the mid-level uh, leaders, too, in that prison camp. We were all officers, well, uh, for the most part, the vast majority. It was an air war. We were all pilots, and it was just a question of unifying the guys. Now, our leaders couldn't see us. They couldn't talk to us. They they couldn't fire us. They couldn't hire us. They couldn't give us a bonus or a vacation. And yet, they inspired us with the why of, uh, of our being there. And once we once we figured that out, once we had a mission, the mission statement um, was return with honor, mm. and uh, and that's what Jim Stockdale came up with. In fact, we just commissioned a destroyer uh, uh, with his name, James Bond Stockdale. It's a guided missile destroyer, and the mission of that destroyer it's right on the right on the bridge of the ship it says return with honor, and that was that was our mission. A simple mission statement, and yet he challenged us that every decision we made in that prison camp would be uh, surrounded by that that uh, that motto, that's one sing, single mantra. Charlie, how did you hear that you were going to receive freedom? They had tried to uh, trick us many, many times. The camp commander would come in and say, hey, just sign this confession and we're going to let you go. Or just make this tape to the anti-war element in the states, and we'll let you go. It was all a propaganda deal for them, and that's what we were resisting. That was our that was our main effort was to resist their propaganda. We'd seen them try to trick us many times, and so we were really reluctant to believe it. They started feeding us better and allowing us outside to put a little color in our face and a little meat on our bones. And I think that was the first indicator. Then they, they came in with a, a, a piece of um, uh, a, a, well, toilet paper, but it's like wrapping paper, uh, asked us to put our foot on the paper, and they traced around our foot. They were going to make some shoes for us. We hadn't seen a pair of shoes in six years. And, uh, and sure enough, they brought in a brand-new pair of leather shoes. 
and then a pair of trousers with a zipper. I hadn't seen a zipper in six years. Yes. So, so that was really the first indicator. When you fully know in your mind and your heart that you're going home, Charlie, what just kind of walk me through some of those emotions you're feeling. It wasn't really real until that Air Force C-141 cargo jet lifted off the runway at Geelong Airport in Hanoi. Because, you know, as long as we were on enemy soil, we couldn't believe it. Once the airplane lifted off and the landing gear started coming up, we just broke loose and started hugging and kissing mostly the Air Force nurses on and and knew that we were free. It it was a feeling a feeling of elation that you you just cannot I mean you're you can't imagine. Literally right up in your throat. Yes. Now ninety minutes later when we landed in uh, Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines, I went to the first phone I could find to call my wife to tell her the good news, you know, that I'd survived this and we were going to be better because yes. of our experience. And she had filed for divorce just three months before I came home. She was engaged to another guy. Uh, I, I, again, you know, my my joy uh, yes. lived to, to sorrow and concern when we touched down at... Uh, at Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines. Uh, I travel a lot for work, and when I go to bed and, you know, I, I miss home, I go to bed fr- frequently thinking about my bride and thinking about my babies, and I can't wait to get home to them. Six and a half years, Charlie. I, I would imagine many, many, many nights you went to bed with her on your mind and as her as part of the why that you're going to return home. Ninety minutes after you take off, when you land, call home, and you learn that she's divorcing you and she's remarrying. How do you go on, man? How does that not finally break you? Well, first of all, let me let me speak to the why. Um, I've been asked several times, hey, don't you wish you had known? Because she had met this guy and fallen in love with him just a couple of years after I was gone. Don't, Charlie, don't you wish you had known that she was going to divorce you? No way. Right. No, she was the why. I planned the next 20 years of my life around that lady, you know, and trying to to make it up to her for the challenges she had faced along with me. And I had, I had 20 years of birthdays and Christmases and meals. I, you know, I, I, I dreamed, yes. you know, every day I prayed for every day. And so it was quite a shock. And it was interesting because the first person that I met at Clark Air Force Base, they hauled me into a room with a psychiatrist and he said, you really need to get bitter about this. You need to get angry. Go back to your hospital room and, you know, tear up yeah. the pillows and kick in the door. Because if you don't show some, some physical uh, response to this tragedy, the longer you wait, um, the more difficult it's going to be to the point that you'll have a mental breakdown. Well, that was 43 years ago. <laughs> I'm still waiting for the mental breakdown. Here's my thought process. How how can I be unhappy? I've just, I've just been released from prison. I, I've just come through a period of my life where 24-7, I didn't know if I'd be alive the next day. And suddenly, I am free. There's no way. There's no way you're going to rain on my, my parade. How do you feel about your first wife today? This is your high school sweetheart. And you know, through the years of Annapolis and then into Pensacola and beyond, she's she's your girl. She will always be my first love. Um, and um, and actually, after I got this letter, I found her address and I sent her back a note. And then we talked on the phone. And I apologized to her for putting her through that. She had some 
terrible psychological problems uh, when I was shot down. I have a brother 10 years younger than I am who looks a lot like me, and he would go over to mow her lawn. He was 17, uh, at the same age that my first wife and I had met, so he looked an awful lot like me. When he showed up to mow her lawn, she would break out in serious, I mean, emergency room-type hives, and she would be hospitalized because she had seen my brother. So it really wore on her. I really believe that in a lot of ways she had it tougher than I did. Charlie, for those of us who uh, are in a prison cell today uh, of someone else's making or our own, or it's just a struggle, a storm we're in the middle of, what, what encouragement would you have for those of us struggling today? My first suggestion is, hey, you have to look for the value in, in the challenge. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a big believer that adversity is a horrible thing to waste. Yes. You, wa- you waste a challenge in your life by blaming other people for your problems and feeling sorry for yourself. Uh, and when you do that, away, away goes your opportunity to be better because of the challenge you're facing believe that there's value here and that there's a purpose to this and then search for it and it really is tough uh it, it, to tell people this Michaela Hot was excellent in you know in her verbiage of this she said when somebody's going through this it's really tough to convince them that there's value here and yet that's the first step is realizing there's value in the situation then the second thing once once you even have an inkling that there's value in the challenge that you face then you have to kick down what's left of your comfort zone. You have to get further outside yourself. This is another thing. The last thing in the world I want to do when I'm in a defensive posture is is to is stand up and fight back. You know, is to is to become more in peril. You yes. know, to to go further into the this extremist condition. Uh, and yet, that's what you have to do. You have to take a risk. You have to get outside yourself. The third thing. I, I think you really have to do is you have to you have to talk to other people. Mm. You, you have to be able to to find common ground and find find a baseline, find a, a, a value system to share with someone. You know, it's that support group yes. that we all need, but we're afraid to to reach out when we're under pressure. These are all not easy things at all. You know, it takes work to figure out what the, what the value is in adversity. Uh, Charlie Plum, if your house caught fire and all living people and all living things, animals, for instance, are out, you have an opportunity to run in and grab one thing that really matters to you today. What, what would you gr- go in and grab? My, you know, my first thought is get my computer because it's got all the pictures and all that stuff, but it's all backed up. So I think, I think what I would get is I have, I have a tin cup that uh, has holes in it and uh, that I brought back from the prison camp. Uh, I had I patched up the holes with earwax so that it would hold water. And I, I keep that tin cup just to remind me of the challenge that I faced and the value of the challenge uh, within that tin cup. Oh, gosh, man. I, I've never heard that part about your story. Well, I don't think I've ever told that. Uh. <laughs> At some point, Charlie, either digitally or face-to-face, I would love to see that 10 cup and uh, to shake the hand of the man who drank from it. Captain J. Charles Plum, 
my friend, you have returned with honor and you have shared not only an incredible story of endurance, but of sacrifice and forgiveness and grace and love. And we're better because of you, man. John, I really appreciate that, my friend. Uh, And I think I'm a better person because of you and your programs and your book. Charlie Plum, you spent six years in internment camps, and yet you've come out with an incredible spirit. Thank you for, uh, again, reminding us that the best is yet to come. So, my friends, this was Charlie Plum. I am John O'Leary, and today is your day. Live inspired. Well, my friends, did that 20 minutes make you want even more of the great Charlie Plum, more of that inspiration, more of his story, more of where he came from and what became of his life. I would imagine it has for you. And if it has, let me encourage you to check out the entire conversation with my friend Charlie Plum. You can tune in anywhere you download your podcast at the Live Inspired Podcast. It is episode 31. Again, that's episode 31. I encourage you to listen to that full episode where Charlie shares even more about the tap code the POWs use to communicate with one another, reconnecting with the person who packed his parachute before that fateful mission. It's an incredible story. And how despite growing up in poverty, he felt extraordinarily rich to have the family of origin that he had growing up. It's an awesome background story. You'll want to hear it. I have a link to episode 31 in the show notes, or you can visit johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. As my hero, Captain Charlie Plum shared, look at the value of challenge. And remember, my friends, you've got a choice. The headwinds are real, yet the foundation is firm and the best days for you and for us remain ahead. So for this time and until next time, my name is John O'Leary. And this is your day. Live inspired. And now, a word from our friends at Keeley Companies. Keeley Companies aspires to be a true leader for businesses and communities. In the words of their CEO, my friend, his name is Rusty Keeley, with a world-class culture focused on people and customer-centric approach. We're truly in the business of people. Check more out about Keeley Companies at KeeleyCompanies.com.